Resale is a channel, and for brands that are building that as a channel, and if we're going to expect this channel to grow to be 10, 20, 30% of a brand's revenue, it's got to have equal or better margin. No business is going to do this where they don't make money or don't make enough. I mean, they're not going to grow the channel. And so let's just start with that as a premise. And that is the case for many, if not all of our brands now, but it's a constant kind of North Star that we work toward. And that happens with technology that's built for resale. You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. 2022 was a banner year for resale. Not only did we see platforms really reach a whole new level of adoption and growth, but we also saw brands implement their own resale strategies and experiences. One company that is helping many of these brands drive their resale approach is Trove. Now, we've covered Trove quite a bit on Retail Touchpoints, but I've never had the chance to sit down with Andy Rubin, founder and executive chairman for the company. So, of course, fresh in the new year, I decided to capitalize on the opportunity to get some face time with him, so to speak. And we got into quite a bit about the space as a whole, what's driving adoption of resale, which consumers are driving the most change. But I think what is most fascinating and exciting about our conversation is that we go a little bit deeper into what brands need to consider as they roll out their resale strategies. How should they be thinking about the experience, measurement, getting buy-in, and so much more. Obviously, Andy and his team have had a lot of conversations with brand leaders and executives about resale, so he brings a very unique perspective to the table. Andy, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show with me. Finally, it's great to meet you. Likewise. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah, and, and I'll be honest, we have covered Trove quite a bit on Retail Touchpoints, but like I said, the first time I'm speaking with you directly. So very excited to have you on and pick your brain a little bit. You know, to that end, I'm sure most, if not all of the folks listening right now have read about Trove, know about Trove, or at the very least has, has seen the company's name in a headline, right? But since you are founder, I do like to kick things off with a bit of the founder story, so to speak. So can you share a little bit about the reason why you started the company to begin with? What were your intentions, your goals? What was your reason for being, so to speak? Yeah, absolutely. I spent most, before Trove, I spent most of my career at Walmart. I had led global strategy, e-commerce strategy, and at some point, really the right way to say it is I, I really ended up right place, right time, and essentially got pushed into starting sustainability at Walmart. Needless to say, it opened my eyes to a million things that I hadn't come across before. And I became fairly obsessed with items. One thing you realize in sustainability and retail is that it's all about the items in the stores. The stores are fine, the packaging, the trucks, all that, but really the items and the way the items are made. And so as I got deeper in, I, again, became a bit obsessive about these items and how they were made and moved from sustainability to private brands with the thought that if I wrote the check for private brands or own brands inside Walmart, I would, this is naive now, I would simply change the way these items were made and we'd take care of the way we're doing things and things would be better. 
And the reality is that the systems are so big and that the change needed is equally big and we really need to do models. So after several years of that, ended up leaving Walmart to start Trove with the idea that these new models couldn't just be talked about. We had to go figure them out. And really brands needed a way to grow without growing new production. And that's a key that maybe we can come back to. But really the key of sustainability for the things in our lives, for the shirts we wear, pants, any soft lines, hard lines, retail items, it is being able to grow without growing new production. And the best way that we have found to do that is to sell the items that brands make multiple times. And so that was the start of Trove, is to pioneer these new models, make them so obvious for brands that it just becomes the way things are done. Yeah. And Trove has definitely helped change the way things are done across categories. I think in the early days of resale or re-commerce, I feel like there were focus areas on key categories, especially luxury. But I think the growing list of Trove partners or customers really is testament to the fact that that this can be applied to so many different businesses, which I think applies nicely to your point around scale and adaptability across the broader industry. But I will note that in our broader coverage of resale, you know, we, we have seen Trove pop up time and time again, really speaking to the critical role that you've played in, in supporting growth of the resale market. But what I find interesting, like as we talk about growth of any particular trend or technology is um, the catalysts or the drivers for that growth. And I always feel like the holiday season is always a really nice indicator or, or a nice transition point. So we can see what trends really bubbled up during that time, what could possibly carry over. And I know Trove did some really interesting research ar around how resale could influence the future of gifting, especially during the holidays. So it was indicated in the findings that 67% of millennials would be likely to give a pre-owned item as a gift, and 74% said they would like to receive a pre-owned gift, which I thought was really interesting that you covered both sides. And it's always nice to see what people say they want or say they'll do. But of course, you know, we always like to follow up and see was the proof really in the pudding, right? Like did people actually do these things? So I'm curious, just given the range of clients that you have, I'm sure the breadth of conversations that you've been having around holiday performance, how have you seen things shake out after this research took place? Like was the demand there? Was the action there? A hundred percent. And what is just like you said it. I mean, it shouldn't be surprising, but we've been, I mean, I've been in this space for 10 plus years now, and every year we have the same story, and every year the story is more true. The numbers continue to represent the customer shift that we're in the midst of. It's really that. It's a way that we choose to shop, which is if we can find a brand that we might not have access to today or might not be able to step into but we can afford that brand. It's an aspirational brand. It's accessible. We're in. There's a treasure hunt element that is critical. And for many customers, the understanding the, the values that we have and sustainability and the understanding that buying an item that has already been produced, so not a net new item being produced, is a positive in a way that people can vote with how they shop. So I think those are three of the major drivers. The number of 
brands in this space, the ability to do this, those are all those are all supportive as well. But there's a trend that is still early, but is absolutely inevitable. It's a $100 billion global industry today, resale, and it is the fastest growing sector inside retail. It is expected to reach $200 billion over the next five years globally. Wow, that's incredible. So looking at that particular research, there was an emphasis on millennials and I always feel like they're an interesting demographic to watch, not because I am a millennial, but because I, I feel like we kind of sit at that cross-section of traditional behaviors versus tech-driven behaviors, whereas Gen Z, for instance, is fully immersed in digital way of life, but also the emphasis on mission-driven commerce and sustainability. So I feel like they're kind of like the leaders, whereas we're kind of teetering in between both worlds. So I'm curious, you, you talked about the growth the growth of this category, where are you seeing this growth happen from the consumer standpoint? Is it largely Gen Z and millennials, but or is this something that is happening more broadly and we're seeing even older consumers, you know, realize the value and and embrace these new offerings that are available? It's both, but clearly this is being led, as you said, it's being led by Gen Zs and millennials, but really Gen Zs. But it is every demographic group, there is something taking place. And one way to think about it that um, we started as a comparison when we launched the first brand, Patagonia, to really be in this space, this is six years ago, we spent a lot of time looking at pre-owned cars. And if you think about what, you know, not just Gen Zs, but what every demographic group appreciates is if you're going to buy a pre-owned Mercedes, buy it from the Mercedes dealer. They know the car, you get the good coffee, like you're just part of that experience. And when we're buying a brand that we aspire to, we like buying from the brand, we trust the brand. And we've seen that with the data that we have. In fact, 60 plus percent of customers who buy a pre-owned Patagonia or pre-owned Arcteryx are brand new to Patagonia and Arcteryx. In other words, they have never bought from those brands before. So incredible customer acquisition strategy. And the second is that these brands, just like the automotive dealers, know where their items are. I mean, REI knows who's bought a kid's sleeping bag over the last 10 years. So when they see demand for pre-owned kid's sleeping bags, they know where to find them, which brings members in their case, but customers back into stores. We see a 2X improvement in loyalty when brands are able to re-engage in this way. So it's it's just one of the ways that customer expectations are evolving. And what brands need to do is stay close to customers. You mentioned you are a millennial. I'm curious if your shopping habits have changed or if you are close to people where you see a shift like this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that your point around accessibility and how resale can almost be used as an acquisition vehicle in that way is the point that really rings true for myself because I've largely purchased through e-commerce or, or resale for luxury brands. And like these are brands like I've always followed, I've always liked their items, but I've always, you know, I'm a bit frugal, I guess you could say. <laughs> so I need a true value driver, right? So in a way, resale allows me to buy it at a better price, a better value. And it's also like, okay, I'm getting this item that's pre-loved, so to speak, and possibly vintage, which always is a driver for me. And I know that my friends, you know, my fellow consumers <laughs> within my circle are definitely open 
to that because they're trying to curb their own consumption behaviors. They're trying to think through the role that they play in in the larger chain of product development and product waste and all of that. And they're excited to try new services too. I think that's an an important note too. Um, Like as we think about the branded experience, like how do you bring resale forward for the consumer? So I guess that's a follow-up question for you then. We're playing a bit of ping pong here. What approaches are you seeing brands take to raise awareness and drive that interest and excitement around resale? Because I feel like there's a difference between just saying like, oh, hey, you can get this used and you can get a better rate or like making it more of an experience, right? Like, are we there yet? Is that something that brands are doing? Yes and no. The awareness is still incredibly low for brands. In other words, the awareness that the awareness that a brand that I aspire to or appreciate is actually, I can go find Warren Ware's Patagonia's program, right? Patagonia's resale program. So I can go find a pre-owned Patagonia on patagonia.com. Oftentimes people will say, where, where do I find that? And I would say Patagonia, right? Or REI or find it at Lululemon, like find it at the brand that you shop at. And so I think that there's still very low awareness. And that is what is 2022, the year we just finished, which is amazing. Finally, the year we just finished was a watershed year for branded e-commerce. We went from 31 brands globally who offered trade-in and resale to 120 plus. So over the last six years, we've been adding, you know, five, 10, a few more brands. Last year, 31 to 120. What is true today, though, with all those brands in the space is brands are doing it very differently, and there's a very different level of scale. So one of the big distinctions in the model that is playing out right now, peer-to-peer has been a real innovation that's allowed a lot more brands to launch, right, leading to the 120. But the experience for brand customers is very different. So it requires you to list an item and then not know if that item is going to be purchased by someone else or not. The brands have a lot less control in the brand and there's a lot less scale in the model. So TBD, it will be seen whether brands who use that model will actually develop the scale we're talking about. What we have always favored and the brands that we support do is owning these items just like they own first sale items. So when you walk into a Lululemon, you don't have to, when you're looking for a pair of yoga pants, you can buy the yoga pants. You don't have to wait. You don't have to negotiate with someone. You don't have to deal with someone who might be selling the pants. You can buy the yoga pants. And we've always believed that for all of us and for this to really scale, it's got to be as easy as it is to walk in and buy what you want. Only you can buy that same item from the brand with the same trust, but pre-owned. And when you're no longer using an item, it's got to be just as easy to hand it back and get value back out of it. So a jacket that no longer fits, a winter jacket, a child has outgrown, you just walk it back, you send it back, you drop it off and you get money back. And so we've always believed that the model that is going to work for customers is one where you don't expect a lot of work. You just make the options available and you make them incredibly easy. And we will see. So we've got a lot of brands in the space right now. I think that's going to be great overall. But this year we will see which brands are able to take those new offerings and scale them and how that happens. And that's going to be essential for the future we want to see. Yeah, well, that's great. And and I do have to add, I find it incredible that Trove has been able to partner with brands like Lululemon that have such high standards for their brand. Like they're very protective of it. They're very 
they're very, I don't want to say strict, I don't think that's the right word, but they're very sure what their brand stands for. They're protective of the brand and how it's represented in the world. And, you know, I feel it's about a lot of luxury brands. So it's surprising when when brands like this embrace something like re-commerce or resale, just mainly because there was historically a connection to like, oh, well, that's like thrifting and therefore it's like cheap and like not aligned with what we want to put out into the world. That's changing, which I think is fantastic. And I think aligning quality standards, brand standards with mission and ties to sustainability and ease of customer experience is key. And the fact that the brands can own the experience, I think, is a big value driver. But I'm curious, what is stopping or slowing other brands from taking cues from brands like Lulu that are very protective and are embracing it? I mean, is that something that people are still trying to wrap their heads around? Or are there other issues at play here that is preventing them from embracing this model? There are a few things you touched on there I think are really important. The first, every brand should be as protective of their brand as Lululemon is. Brands that really care about their brand, those are the best brands. Those are the brands that we want to work with because those are the items that we would all appreciate having after their first sale. No one's ever really excited about a pre-owned super cheap car, right? Like people buy pre-owned cars because you can move into a Lexus or whatever it is. So they're the brands that really care about the brand and every brand, the brands that aren't able to do that. And I really think it's not that don't care about that. I think it's aren't able to do that are just going to be less successful going forward. We talk about internally, the brands that are the most picky about the brands are the ones we want to be working with. The more picky, the better, because those are brands that in the open market, they've lost control of how their items are being merchandised, right? What they sit next to, what the pricing is, how they're posted. Whereas when a brand like Lululemon brings this back in house, they regain control of that secondary market. They can choose how they want to price a secondhand item right? A previously owned item, what gift card value they want to hand back, how they want to describe it, merchandise it, all of that. That's all about brand. So I think every strong brand needs to be doing this themselves really to protect their brand. And that's why it's important for them to be owning this model, not to be doing it peer to peer, frankly, and certainly not to be doing it on a third party marketplace. They've got to own this. And the biggest reason that brands aren't doing that. It's just a number of things in front of them right now. This is a difficult time for any brand, any retailer. And this is true innovation. And it's always most difficult to do the innovation you have to do in difficult economic times. But the upside is the greatest. What I would say is there are a lot of providers out there like Trove, not just Trove, but I mean, we're obviously one. But these providers make it so much easier for a brand to understand what the steps are, to kind of hold hold hands and onboarding and get these things launched and do them right. And the biggest thing for a brand is work with someone you can trust who's got the experience and protect your brand. And your response there, Andy, kind of triggered a question I was going to ask later, but I think it's important to bring this up now since you've brought up this, this idea of scale a few times over the course of our conversation. So I want to make sure we have time to dig into that. Because as I was prepping, I saw this interview with your CEO, Gail Tate. She spoke with Footwear News about how there is a clear appetite in the industry to make a positive impact on the environment and resale is supporting that, which I think we've talked about pretty thoroughly thus far. But the reality is doing that in a profitable way, and like you said, a scalable way is not always easy. I'm hoping that you can expand 
upon those challenges and those complexities that typically emerge when a brand tries to build out this type of business or workflow on their own and, you know, what really needs to be managed on the back end as we think through all of these things that you just shared in your last response, like merchandising, pricing, experience, like what really happens behind the scenes? As a starting point for any, you know, we, we talk about what we do for how we see our role for brands, which is providing a business channel, right? A channel just like e-commerce is a channel, physical stores are a channel, wholesale is a channel. Resale is a channel. And for brands that are building that as a channel, and if we're going to expect this channel to grow to be 10, 20, 30% of a brand's revenue, it's got to have equal or better margin. No business is going to do this where they don't make money or don't make enough. I mean, they're not going to grow the channel. And so let's just start with that as a premise. And that is the case for many, if not all of our brands now, but it's a constant kind of North Star that we work toward. And that happens with technology that's built for resale. There is bespoke technology that needs to be configured for a brand. So there are a hundred different choices around how items show up, what the condition grade is, but that is all built into technology that we offer. And it's technology that makes this world possible at scale. And that technology isn't just the commerce experience and the integration. It also includes supply chain and operations. So the ability to list an item with computer vision and AI, understand with a rubric that doesn't exist in, you know, doesn't have to exist on a laminated sheet, what the condition grade of an item is. Those are the type of technology, I don't know if I'd call them breakthroughs, but investments that that people like Trove, you know, we've been investing hundreds of millions of dollars in that technology, where a brand then can get this offering off the ground and scale it. There are a lot of brands out there that are moving 100 items, 200 items. REI was a great data point. In 2021, they shared they moved a million items in the pre-owned space. So the difference in scale that the technology enables isn't, you know, 2x, 3x. We're talking about 100x, some cases, you know, more. So I think that scale is really enabled by the technology and the technology both allows that and it allows the understanding from an item level up of how brands make good money doing it, how they make margins that allow them to grow this as an additional revenue driver. Oh, that's great. So to that end, are there any pitfalls or obstacles that brands may face or are likely to face as they work to kind of build their resale strategies? I mean, I guess this kind of goes beyond the technology in a certain capacity because there are other levers to pull here, right? It's like go-to market strategy. It's like testing it in the market. It's finding ways to drive acquisition and awareness of these services and, and reach that full that full margin potential, right? Um, so is there anything else that is worth calling out for, I'm sure a lot of folks listening either have a resale strategy or are thinking about establishing one. So, I mean, what would you kind of call out as things to prepare for, I guess? Sure. I mean, one of the biggest drivers of profit to be made in the secondary market is it's the price point of the original item. And, you know, resale where the brand is really owning the second, third, and fourth sale of an item that they've designed, they've made, they've sold the first time. That is, there's more margin to be done in an item that's got a higher price point. As important and related to that is the desirability of that item in the secondary market. Right? The resale programs that we run with 
major brands like Lululemon or Arcteryx or On Running, Allbirds, et cetera. Those are brands that have incredible demand in the secondary market, and they're designed around which items they bring back, how they bring them back so they can make money. But there's definitely a, there are pitfalls in program design that brands need to be aware of. And the biggest one is probably underestimating the technology to deal with items as single items, as opposed to SKUs with order quantities. So most formal retailers built around a parent or child SKU or stock keeping unit SKU. And then you have, you know, maybe a hundred thousand units every unit looks the same. You can process every unit in the same way. Whereas when you're buying items back from customers, you've got to understand roughly what the condition of that unique item is. Not 100,000, but that unique item. Because you might hand a customer a larger gift card or a smaller gift card, depending on the item. In either way, you could either lose money with too large of a gift card, or you could end up with missing the best options because you're not giving enough money on a gift card. And having technology, we've got Trove technology with five partners and over 700 U.S. stores. Having that type of technology in-store, online, um, allows brands to, to really automate those type of decisions in ways they expect because it's how modern retail works. And that's based on technology. Super helpful. I think it's always interesting to hear the nuance behind the models, right? Like this isn't something... It seems to me, at least, that you can turn off or on, right? Like there's some, there's some thought that kind of goes into everything, right? One of the questions that investors have always asked, and I'm sure they ask everyone in the space, is why don't brands just do this themselves, right? It's always one of those. And it's, it's not quite an eye roll question, but if you're inside this space, you know that that is, that is not what anyone is really concerned about. What everyone's concerned about is how do we do it in a way that's really customer-centric where a brand takes back ownership and gets to make all the decisions brands make day in, day out about the brand, but can do that at scale across millions of their items and build a growth strategy that's going to work for the brand and their customer, right? Not every strategy, not every program design is right for every brand and every customer. And one of the real values that Trove provides is just we've, you know, it's not our first rodeo. And there's a lot of program design and a lot of, you know, sometimes hard learnings, but learnings that now benefit people who are entering the space now of how to do this in brand, elevate the brand through resale and do it at scale and build a new profit center that's going to make increasing money. And one of the things I often think about as well is just be ready as the market shifts. Like we don't know if this, I mean, I, I think this is going to be 10 to 30% of all retail revenue. But you don't have to agree with that. You just have to know there's a possibility of that and it's on track for that. So as that plays out, have a business model that's ready to scale as your customer continues to evolve. I think it's really that simple. That's great. As a modern retail CIO, you're not only charged with understanding the latest technology innovations in the market, but you're also responsible for guiding your organization through its digital transformation journey. In Aptos's new guide, Preparing Your Retail Enterprise for Unified Commerce, we've outlined the most important things to consider from a technology perspective and the considerations you'll need to make in key departments within your organization to properly prepare for unified commerce. Head over to aptos.com forward slash readiness to download your free copy. So I'm going to put you on the spot here, Andy. You brought up learnings as the market evolves and progresses. Is there one or even two that really come to mind, especially over the past year, just given the momentum of Trove and just broader industry progress, anything that comes to mind that you would share? I think one of the, it's 
it's almost seems uh seems obvious, but can I give you two? I don't know which one is. So uh one is a simple integration to existing systems. We have reached a point in resale where companies like Trove or brands, I should say, brands like Patagonia have a fantastic front end website, patagonia.com. We don't have to have a separate one, just integrate it with the front end. The second is really operations. And operations is about the integration with warehouse management systems, order management systems, ERP. Allow this to take the next level of scale based on those integrations. And brands might not start there, but as their programs scale, they need to work with partners that are able to take them there. Because beyond a few hundred thousand items, you're going to want to be pulling all the data into a business intelligence or BI tool. You're going to want to be able to cross-merchandise products and basically continue to blend new and pre-owned items in a way that makes sense for customers. You're going to want to integrate trade-in points around the customer journey to make it easy to have more customer interaction. So that second point around operations is really critical. So integration and operations are two that we are making incredible headway with right now with our brand partners. And I think we will see play out in the coming years. It's essential. Yeah, no, I think both of those points are are super valuable and and worth calling out. So thank you for that. Before we close things out, I do want to ask you quickly just about broader progress. And and of course, you know, a few takeaways, I guess, for our listeners. So like we've mentioned a few times, a lot of progress has uh, taken place over the course of 2022. And I feel like 2023, we're already hearing resale is going to reach new heights this year. Um, It's going to be a big driver of growth opportunity for the industry. I'm curious because obviously you live and breathe this every day. Is progress where you one, expected, and two, hoped it would be? Like, how how do you kind of feel about where the industry is standing right now? It is, but it's playing out differently than I, at least me, I don't, I couldn't speak for anyone else who's been in this space for, you know, many years. But while it is, it's progressing and strangely the way that I think is obvious and it should, it's happening with more, it's like almost happening in color where I kind of pictured it in black and white, if that makes any sense. You know, as it happens, there is so much nuance to what is taking place. And I find that phenomenally exciting. Why, you know, the things that are exciting me right now are the number of brands in this space. And this is the single most important retrofit on a sustainability topic anywhere in retail, bar none. This is for any brand that really cares about sustainability, you have got to have a strategy to get more money out of the things you make. So I don't know if we can agree to that, but I I would contend that. And so as this plays out, I find it phenomenally exciting. And I don't think it's just about, it doesn't have to be about sustainability. If you're a luxury brand, you know, and you go on walmart.com right now or Amazon, you're going to find a thousand Louis Vuitton bags right now on, on Amazon. There are a thousand Louis Vuitton bags on Walmart. And so any brand that has a brand to take care of and to build and have momentum and evolve with culture is a brand that needs to protect itself. And these days in the secondary market as it grows, these companies are able to buy back from us and sell to us. And any brand that is a true brand is going to have to have a strategy for owning their secondary market. So not only is it playing out in an exciting way, it's still early for branded re-commerce. We're going to see a lot more progress on branded re-commerce. And how exciting to be early in an industry that really matters and is inevitably going to play out and just be play any part in accelerating that 
I think it's phenomenally exciting. Got it. So tagging on to your point about how this is happening in color, so to speak, and we're seeing all of the different layers and players try to contribute to resale and, you know, its possible growth and impact. I'm curious about your thoughts on fast fashion players getting involved in this space, because obviously <laughs> their, their role in the fashion waste discussion is pretty consistent. Do you think this is positive progress for not just resale as a category, but for fast fashion players? Or do you think that this new development is a bit contradictory and, and kind of impacts the value and the positioning of what what resale aims to do from a sustainability standpoint? Yeah, I mean, overall, it was, an int- I mean, three of Zara, H&M, Shein launched a, a resale platform. You know, I don't think a lot of people are sitting around hungry to, f- how could we possibly access a Shein, you know, an item from Shein these days? People know how to do that. They can go buy an item for $4. It's not a hard thing to do. And so in the end, these players getting into resale, I think will be a bit of a yawn. It's probably had more talk than it even deserves. It's certainly not a sustainability play by any means. Every one of those players has a strategy in front of them that could make better decisions in terms of sustainability. I don't think that a resale platform is a sustainability answer for any of them. And I don't think it's going to be the answer for customers. I don't think it's serving a real need. So in the end, what I'm far more excited about is the the platforms that are evolving to support the brands that have the opportunity to really change the way we shop. And that when Patagonia themselves sells a nanopuff for the fifth time to a fifth, you know, let's just call it a fifth child who goes skiing, that is three to four jackets that are never made. That is a brand that is gaining customers, gaining market share, gaining loyalty. That's a brand that's making money in part now in a growing channel from existing items, not from new production. And if you're a brand that is not doing that, you're going to be losing market share to Patagonia. So kind of do that. Let your customers move away from you at your own peril, is what I would say. And I don't, I don't think the fast fashion players getting into this is going to make a whole lot of difference to that. Yeah, I think that's a really solid point. And you've brought up a few different indicators, or I guess you could say metrics over the course of our conversation. So I want to, I want to make sure we talk about that actually before I let you go, because with any investment, you know, there are discussions around, oh, what's the possible return? What's the possible impact, especially now, right? So how do you navigate discussions around measurement or accountability? Like, do you emphasize the loyalty creation, the value from the customer standpoint? Is it the production standpoint? Is it both? I think that's one area, like as we think about sustainability more broadly, that's that's one thing I think a lot of players are still thinking about, still questioning, but it's interesting for a company like Trove, right? Because there are so many layers to how you think about the value of service right. like this. You know, it's a double-edged sword. It is, like I said, it's a channel. It's a channel that's got to be built out on its own that makes sense for customers, and it's got to integrate with other channels. E-commerce is a good example. You wouldn't look at e-commerce and say, what's the, if you had a single metric for e-commerce, it would probably be market shares to serve your customers better. And if there was a single metric here, it would probably be similar, right? It's how do you as a brand do that? But underneath that, is the scale of the program itself. In other words, are you operating, is this a one-time story that you're going to get a headline for because you're going to go sell 35 items and in the end, you're not really building a growth strategy, you had a story? Or is this something that is going to, you know, you've got the ability to measure new customers coming in, how those customers stick with the brand, 
the loyalty you're able to build by keeping customers close to you based on items where they've worn, they've enjoyed, but they no longer need? Are you building revenue? Is it happening at good profit margins? And are you able to scale the platform to millions of items where this can become a meaningful percentage of your business? And on the sustainability front, which we've touched on, I think there's a lot, I mean, especially the fast fashion players, there is a lot, a lot of people are touting resale as a sustainability move. And it is if it's done right. I think there are also immense risks in some of the business and incentive models that players out there have in resale, where they're really not making money as a channel. They're only making money, let's say, on a gift card for people to go buy you know, a new item. What I just said is not a growth channel for a brand. And ultimately, there is, I would call it yellow, really not red, but there is a risk in those type of business models. There's risk of greenwashing. And so I think that brands also need to navigate, if they're going to tout this as a sustainability move, they need to navigate the business model underlying how they're doing resale. And ultimately, they should make sure that they are building a growth channel in the way that it's set up, could be 10, 20% of every item, every item moved to a customer. If they're doing that, then they're really setting themselves up for really decoupling growth of the business and brand from CO2. If they're not, I think it's really important to look at that and ask, is it just a marketing program called Sustainable? Got it. A lot of great tips there, Andy. And I was actually going to ask you if you had any tips or recommendations for our listeners. I feel like we have a few throughout our conversation, but is there anything that we haven't touched on just yet, I guess, for the folks listening that are looking to venture into this space, but want to make sure that they have the right strategy in place before they get going. Any closing recommendations there? Yeah. I mean, a few, and this is really based on, you might be able to tell, I mean, I love this space, phenomenally excited about what's happening right now in this space. In that we, on LinkedIn, we started doing about, boy, it's probably been five months now. We do a weekly resale edit where we look at all the news and resale because there is a lot going on and we put some commentary around it and we publish it every week. And what's been great about that is all the feedback. So you can find that on LinkedIn. It's called the resale edit. Feel free to subscribe to that. And if you do and you read something, you agree, disagree, but let me know. I mean, that's the reason to do it is to have those conversations. I think one great thing any brand can do is be in the space. You can't learn from reading articles. You can only learn about your customers and your brand from being in a space. And one of the fantastic points in the past few years is the number of players like Trove that are now out in the market to support brands. So once you, you know, as exploring in the space, meet with people, meet with Trove, meet with other people, you will learn a lot about the space itself. And I think that is fantastic. So really what I'm saying is there's a lot of resourcing out there to get started. Getting started is the most important thing. Think about not just having the first moment, but really think about, are you building a program that has the potential to really drive scale and build you a growth channel that doesn't rely on new production? And if you're doing that as a brand and you're providing options that customers are evolving toward and shopping, and you've got the ability to grow that as customers move toward it, then you're staying close to your customers. And that's protecting your brand, staying close to customers are kind of the 
the same things we always come back to. Amazing, Andy. Well, before I let you go, one, thank you again so much for taking the time out to share your transparent thoughts on what's happening in the industry, both on the consumer side as well as the brand side. You know, what you've seen in the different use cases and approaches to this model, and also just sharing some really great tips and and reminders for all the folks listening. But before I let you go, I do want to ask, I mean, what's on the horizon for Trove specifically? I mean, I'm sure a lot of other great partnerships on the horizon, but... What are you all focusing on strategically? Yeah, I mean, I feel like we're I feel like we're at the beginning, right? So we're we're just getting started. I mean, I'm I couldn't be more proud of the brands we get to work with day in and day out. I I love them. There are many more brands that are coming into the fold right now. I'm phenomenal. I think 2023 is going to be a year that luxury really wakes up, and there is no more exciting space than you know premium items for all of us from those brands, and that's a really big opportunity. The integration I mentioned is a big opportunity, but I mean, ultimately, our job is to provide these growth strategies for every brand out there where it becomes as obvious to us that, I mean, someday, someday I imagine in my mind talking to someone young and they'll, they'll ask legitimately, they'll say, and what happened when you just weren't using that Patagonia jacket anymore? What, you just like left it in your closet? And I would have to answer with a straight face and say, yeah, we, we just weren't, we weren't very smart. Like we just didn't really, we didn't really know what we were doing back then. It's just so obvious. And the hard part is how the hard part is back to your very first question about why start a business here, which is to figure out how this space works for brands because brands have the ability to change the customer world. Our lives are filled with brands and we're seeing it now, but it's still early. So, so much to go. To be continued, right? Fantastic. (laughs) All right. Awesome, Andy. Thank you again so much for taking the time out. It has been a real pleasure. Likewise. Thank you. And to all of you, if you have any follow-up questions for Andy, like he said, recommend you look more into the company and all the resources that they provide. But of course, let's keep the dialogue going. Drop us a line on Twitter at our touchpoints or on LinkedIn at Retail Touchpoints. We'll be sure to tag Andy and the Trove team just so they know the conversations that are happening, the questions that are coming up, because it is a quickly evolving space. And I think we all can benefit from sharing our own experiences, our own thoughts, and our own ideas. And of course, if you have any thoughts on this episode, feedback on the series as a whole, we would love to hear from you. Leave us a rating or review on your preferred podcast player. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, frankly, anywhere else. We are likely there. That's it for now, though, folks. We'll see you next week. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.